morning, everyone. You doing okay? Nice to see the sun come out for the school holidays, isn't it? <laughs> it always happens, doesn't it? Every year, it's the summer holidays, and suddenly it starts raining. Anyway, I have this. We're going to do part two of the boat story, and I was trying to think of as many boat stories in my own life that I could think of, and so they're scattered through this morning's talk of a few times I might have been on the boat. But one of my favorite ones is a really vivid memory of when I was a child, and me and my twin brother, we were age about maybe seven years old, six or seven, and um, on a Sunday afternoon, my parents, we would jump in the car with my parents and my little brother, who was a baby, and we bombed to the East Coast and to a little place that was near a place called Frinton-on-Sea. And we would go to this beach, and it was a big beach for miles. And you can see, <clears throat> this is a photo here, there was a tide in on Frinton Beach. And um, one thing I remember most is that my dad used to make us a sand boat. And so he would spend the afternoon digging a boat out of the sand. And he was really good at this. I can't remember if we were allowed to help or if it was a dad job. Do you know what I mean? And so we would build this sand boat with like two little seats for me and my twin brother to sit in. We'd dig a moat around it. And we'd have fun throughout the afternoon. And then the best bit was when we would be, the tide would start to come in, like in the picture, and the tide would start to come in, and we would jump in the boat, and we would sit in there together, and there's this sense of, like, adventure and mild peril as the tide came in, and it ran around the moat, and we felt like we were in a boat in the sea, and all the squealing and the adventure, and then, of course, the tide would come in more, and eventually the boat would dissolve, and I just remember the squealing and the laughter, and, you know, my dad's creation for the afternoon was all gone, but the moment was there. And then we would go to this like park that was quite close by. And I remember it being really green in contrast to the beach and green trees. And I remember going to this little iron gate and we would sit down on, uh, my mum had this uh, red tartan rug and we'd sit on the rug and have a picnic. And I remember the novelty of this picnic that we were allowed a whole hard boiled egg just as the egg. And as a six or seven year old, this was quite a novelty to have one all to myself. And then we'd have the rest of the picnic. I don't know if you, some of you will remember this in the room, Jamaican ginger cake. Do you remember that? I don't know if there's anything Jamaican about it, but it, that was the title. It was in a foil wrapper. Do you remember that? And this was like the culmination of the picnic. And I think any other time, none of us would ever have wanted ginger cake. But in this context, it was just like magical. And it was like, you know, the foil wrapper would open. We'd all have a little slice. I remember this really clearly, just such vivid memories. And when we remember something, sometimes those details frame the event, don't they? They're like a frame. And Matthew talked to us last week how our Jesus in the Boat series, how the boat frames the story. The boat, getting in the boat, traveling in the boat, getting off the boat. It does remind me when he was speaking last week, when he was in sixth form, I think it was, or year five, a load of them went on this um, kind of pilgrimage through France with the school. Where was it to? Santiago on bikes and uh, he was given the job of filming it and when he came home he had to edit a film or create a film and he asked me to come and watch it and help him edit it and I remember sitting there and going hmm another bike another bike another bike another bike and that's become a phrase in our family now if you're going on a bit about something that's repetitive we'll go to each other another bike another bike and I feel with this series it's almost like another boat another boat another boat but there's a context to the boat there's a reason for the boat what happened just before and what happened after and what happened during and as Matthew explained the boat kind of frames 
the story. It helps us to remember. And being a seaside city, it's great, I think, that we have our own boats down there in the seaside, and it really does a nice theme for our summer series. And so the boat gives it context. It anchors the story in real time and places, in villages and towns around the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus encounters with real people. And so today, as we start, you know, as we're starting this series, I want to invite us all to go on an adventure with Jesus, that we actually, like in our minds, get in the boat, get in Jesus' boat, and say, what will I learn on this adventure? How will I be different at the end of this summer series? What will I learn? What will I discover? What will change me? What will comfort me? What will help me grow? And let's give ourselves to this adventure. So today's boat story. Now, interesting story. <coughs> Sorry. We're gonna, we're gonna, what happened before and after this boat story? So before, it's like a sandwich. So it's kind of like a sandwich. We've got the story that we're looking at today in the middle. It's like a sandwich either side. So what is the sandwich? Well, the first part before our boat story, it's a busy day for Jesus as, as usual. So Jesus comes down from the mountain and there's huge crowds already, surrounded by huge crowds. Do you remember he heals that leper? The leper says, if you're willing, and Jesus says, I am willing, and he heals the leper. As he walks into the town of Capernaum, do you remember the centurion's faith? He, dis- he encounters this centurion who says, I'm a man under authority as well. Just say the word. And Jesus is amazed at his faith. And the servant gets healed even without him going to the, to the centurion's house. Then they arrive at Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law was making dinner, but now she has a fever and she's ill. And Jesus goes and heals her. And she gets up and carries on making them dinner. And so the word just goes through Capernaum that evening. So by the time the sun sets, then loads of crowds come to Peter's house And it says in Matthew 8, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. So this is what happens before the story. And then what happens after is when they get into the boat, what happens after is a violent storm catches them on the lake. And Jesus just comes in incredible power and changes that situation, which we'll hear in a couple of weeks. So today's story is sandwiched in the middle of this incredible multiple healings and casting out of demons and a huge demonstration of power over nature. And in the middle of these two, in the middle of this sandwich, there is a call to abandon everything to follow Jesus. This miracle working, powerful Jesus. In between these demonstrations, there is a simple call to follow him. So let's look at the passage together. It's in Matthew 8, and this is today's passage. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead, which seems a bit rude. And we find out what that means in a moment. So we're going to unpack this in just two points. It's just like two simple points. And the first one is this. It's about the escape by boat. 
Now, it's interesting how a lot of the time we may hear talks how, you know, Jesus is surrounded by crowds and he's happy to have his day interrupted. But it wasn't just that. There were times when he needed to get away. And we see in this passage that we're looking at today where Jesus escapes the growing crowd. He escapes them. And if the story is chronological, because we have to remember that the writers, it's not necessarily chronological like a diary, but sometimes the writers pull together similar stories into one place. But if it is chronological, we can see that Jesus has been surrounded by crowds since coming down the mountain. Down the mountain, heals a leper, heals the centurion's servant, surrounded by people. At dinner is interrupted, heals Peter's mother-in-law, has dinner, heals all those who are sick and casts out demons. And so we see now that Jesus kind of says to the disciples, get me out of here. It's time to go. And the boat becomes a means of escape. And in the message version, I think it puts it really well. It says this, when Jesus saw that a curious crowd, now this was the earliest alpha, by the way, the curious crowd. When Jesus saw that a curious crowd was growing by the minute, he told his disciples to get him out of there to the other side of the lake. And sometimes it's time to come aside and escape the crowd. For each one of us, there is time, there is a moment, there are times in our lives of our rhythm of life that we need to come aside from the crowd. Maybe that's people or noise or social media, news streams. Whatever that crowd of noise and distraction is in our head, there is time like Jesus to escape and to find a quiet moment. We need to find time to pray, time to be in God's presence and be refreshed. Maybe it means getting alone before everybody else is up. I remember once in one very bitterly cold winter, just seeking after God all the time and having to get up really early before the kids are all up getting ready for school and going down into our lounge. And there's a little gap between the radiator and the sofa, and I would sit there on a cushion and pray, and God really spoke to me uh, on one occasion doing that. Or maybe a walk in the countryside, a walk by the beach, still our hearts and calm our minds. When our children were very small, we were pioneering church, and we had open house, and that meant we were very, um, not often on our own. And I remember the few occasions where, because all the meetings were in our house, we pioneered the church in our house. So people were in and out of the house. We had young children. We're pioneering. And I remember occasionally Julian would go to speak in a church or go somewhere to pastor something, and I'd be babysitting. And the last child falls asleep, and I would go downstairs. And earlier in the day, I'd been over the shop opposite and buy a crunchy and an evening post, preferably the property uh, edition, as it wasn't online in those days. And I would lie by the fire my crunchy cup of tea in the evening post, or alternatively, I'd be doing a Bible study. I remember now those times of just quiet, of busyness, people in the house, small children, pioneering, just that quietness. It doesn't take a lot of money or a lot of time to be quiet. We need to find those times of quiet. It's important for our health, for our mental health, for our minds, for our hearts, just to come aside but not come aside into a vacuum, but into God's presence, just in quiet little ways, bite-sized ways. I love it how that famous Psalm 23, the psalmist puts it like this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down. Wouldn't you like it if just somebody, sometimes somebody would make you lie down, would permission you? It's okay, I'll take care of everything. You, go, you just go and 
lie down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. We need to take those times that our soul is refreshed and it's not like we're just drained of everything. So Jesus, in this occasion, aims to escape the crowd. Let's go to the other side and escape. And I was trying to think of a quiet boat story. And this is one of my quiet boat stories. Sometimes Julian and I go and hire this little flat in Spain. And one time I convinced him to come on a boat. And he, he wasn't that impressed, really. But, you know, you, fair play, he came. It's called a sunset cruise. It's not really a cruise. It's like you get on a boat, they drive you out to sea, and they drive you back. They give you a plastic cup of warm carver as the sun goes down. But this is what I loved about it. As we went out on the boat, because it's so hot out there, you go out on the boat and you can just feel the breeze. Just feel everything quiet. You get away from the town, and you're just out there on the water with nothing around. You see the town from a whole different perspective. You see the coast going by, and all you hear is the wind and the sound of the waves. There's so much space, and it quietens the soul. And we need to find those times, time for little escapes. Not many of us could go on a big one, but a little one. Find little escapes, little pockets to be with him and quieten our hearts. So the second point is this. It's all about being a true disciple. And in a way, <clears throat> those words shouldn't go together because disciple should be a true disciple. There shouldn't be any other kind of disciple. There shouldn't be, you know, number two, how to be a lukewarm disciple. Or number two, how to be a part-time disciple. We shouldn't really put true disciple. It should just be disciple. But we can see in this story now how Jesus makes the point about being a true disciple. So let's look at what being a disciple of Jesus really means. And what I noticed about this story is how, you know, he says to his disciples, as in like the 12, let's get in the boat and escape. Before he can escape, there's a but can you, but can you. Have you ever noticed that? You're trying to get out the door or trying to do something. Like, oh, but, but. So these, these guys come along. But before he can even go and escape, there's a but, but Jesus. And two guys come up to him. Now, these two people, they come up and they propose to Jesus they're going to follow him. And Jesus responds to them by kind of saying, are you really up for this? Do you know what you're saying? Are you ready to abandon all? So the first one, the first one is called a teacher of the law. So this would be a highly respected teacher who understands all the, the, the scriptures at that point and the teaching to the people, well respected. And his words to Jesus say, I'm in. Count me in, I'm in. Count me in, I'm in. In front of the crowd, I, I'm in. Jesus, I'm in. But Jesus senses his heart, that he's saying the right words, but actually his heart is leaning somewhere else. So Jesus kind of questions and says, are you ready for this sacrifice? So let's look at it. It says here, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus here is talking about his traveling ministry. He had sacrificed the ability to have like his own home. He lived in other people's homes. He lived, you know, uh, while he was traveling. And he says, look, even foxes at night have a den to return to. Even birds, when the sun goes down, they fly back to their nests and they have their own little place. 
where I sacrifice, I have no home of my own. Jesus was just totally focused on the people and his mission and his message. And so he challenges this guy. Now, he must have been able to tell because the guy says the right thing, doesn't he? But Jesus could tell. His words were saying one thing, but his heart was somewhere else. And Jesus senses the truth beneath his words. So this teacher of the law was saying the words of sacrifice, but held back by his comfort. And as I was studying this, I thought we need to think about our own lives. Sometimes we sing such amazing words up here on the screen. But is our heart in those words? When we say, Jesus, I'm all in, are we all in? Let's just pause for a moment and reflect. When we say, Jesus, I'm abandoned to you, it's all in, are, are we? If Jesus stood there before us, I'm all in, Jesus, would he say, but are you? And it's a reflect, something for us to reflect on and go, Gosh, Lord, I want to be. Help me to follow you more fully. So the second person is another disciple who comes up to him. And his, he comes, comes up to Jesus. Now, what's interesting to me is they volunteer this. They could have just blended in with the crowd. But the teacher of the law comes up. Hey, teacher, I'll follow you wherever. And Jesus is like, wherever, will you? Mm. You know, so the second one comes up to him and he initiates this conversation and he says to Jesus, first let me, first let me. I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me. So it says in the scripture here, again, we can see how Jesus sees to the heart. He, this, this young disciple, he brings his excuses, not to commit right now, put it off, do it another time. It says, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In the message version, it says this. Jesus refused. First things first, says Jesus. Your business is life, not death. Follow me. Pursue life. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. This was radical at the time. And when we unpack it, we'll see, we'll see why. But this is radical at the time because Jesus challenges a cultural priority by say, saying following him is a higher one. And so at that time, the, um, the Jewish people felt that the highest, almost like the supreme commandment was to honor your father and mother. It was almost supreme above everything else. And the honoring your father and mother meant burying them, burying them properly according to the burial traditions. And so for this young man to say in front of the crowd, first let me go and borrow, uh, bury my father, uh, the crowd would sway their like emotional, oh yeah, in, in the favor of this young man. So for Jesus to turn around and say, no, let the dead bury their own dead. Let's see what that means. That would have been radical at the time. I mean, it's still quite radical now, but let's see why uh, that he's talking about a higher following. Okay, so burial traditions at that time. When this uh, person, probably a young man, says, first let me go and bury my father, it's very unlikely means his father has just died. It either means his father died a while ago or will die at some point, and we, we'll see why. So first, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So the burial practice of the day, the first thing is that what would happen, the, the person would die, let's say it's the father. So the father dies this is quite pertinent with John passing away last weekend. You know, happened to get this script about someone passing. So let's power through. I'm sure I'm going to manage this. Okay, so 
The father dies, the mourners gather, the body's prepared for burial. And this all happens quite quickly. We're talking of Mediterranean climate here. And so the person dies, mourners gather, they prepare the body, and straight away they process to the tomb with the family, the mourners, and the body straight away in a hot country, and the body is put immediately in the tomb. And for the following week, the family members would stay home mourning. They don't go out. So you can see it's really unlikely that this young man is in the middle of that process because he would be at home preparing the body in a procession or mourning at home. So it's very unlikely that his father has just died and he's out and about chatting to Jesus. He would be at home. The second thing that would happen is this. One year after his father's death, the eldest son would return to the tomb to rebury him. And what they would do is gather up the bare bones. After a year, there would just be the bare bones left. And they would, they would have a special burial box, like a bone box. They would put the bones all neatly in this box. And then they would be slid into a hole in the wall, usually in like a catacomb or a, or a tomb. Um, and, they, and often it was all the family. You can see here, uh, excavations have found some of these boxes and what they look like, beautifully decorated boxes. And they were put neatly in this slot. And so the young man speaking to Jesus, you can see it's unlikely that a father has just died that minute, but maybe his father died at some point, and he's kind of waiting out the year to do the bone box thing, okay? And the crowd would know that. But either way, it was a delay tactic. Can you see? He was saying, I just want to hang around until my dad dies. So it could be any time. And he's kind of trying to sway with the crowd here. I have responsibilities. I'm not ready to follow you, Jesus. But one day, when my father passes, I need to be here. Or supposing it's within the year to do the bone box. doesn't mean he can't go back and do it. So either way, he's saying, well, I'm going to put it off a year. Or I'm going to put it off to my father's eyes. Can you see it was a delay tactic? He was kind of saying to Jesus, hey, count me in. But not yet. But not yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not quite ready. Let me live my life as I want first, and later I will follow you. Now, I remember when I was in um, sixth form and in university, we would sit around, uh, especially at university, sit around in each other's rooms at night in a little crowd talking about all things about the world, where you think you're smart at that age, don't you? And that you can solve anything and talk about the world and you know, everything that needs to happen. I remember us all talking, and sometimes I was the only Christian in this particular group. And people would say to me, I'm not ready to give my life to Jesus now. I can see your point, and I can see, you know, you think it's brilliant. But, you know, I want to live my life how I want to first. I would like to, you know, do all the things that young people do, and then I will go with Jesus later when I'm old, when I don't have the energy to do all the things I want. That was kind of the, the feeling of people of putting it off. But, do you know, we all know, don't we, that when you're young, the patterns you form when you're young set the course of your life in the future. And so if you're young and you go, I won't go with Jesus yet because I want to be promiscuous and I want to sleep around and I want to experience things, that does something to you. It does something to your heart. It does something to your trust with other people. It does damage to you and to other people. And so by making that choice not to pursue Jesus, you actually create damage within your own heart that stays there all the rest of your life. Or supposing someone says, well, I want to play around with like, drugs and getting drink, get drunk, and I want to do all those things. I want to experience things. Not realizing that a lot of drugs that we can, you know, people can take leaves you with mental health issues, with paranoia, with difficulty, with depression. 
And actually, rather than like, well, I'll put Jesus off till later, the very person who can change our life, the very person we go, well, wait, just wait till I mess up my life and other people's. And we don't know with this young guy. I mean, this guy says he's a disciple. It says the disciple said um, that I'll, I'll come back and follow you later. But there's no time to put it off because Jesus comes into our life and he heals us and he changes us and he strengthens us and he takes us on an adventure. And why would we put that off? Now, Jesus' reply is swift and to the point, this young man, because obviously he knows all these things and he's taking no messing when he says the dead will bury their own dead. And he's swift to the point with a challenge and basically says to him, if you're coming, come now. If you're coming, come now. If you want me, come now. If you're going to follow me, follow me now. If you're with me, do it now. Come right now. And I don't think this young man did. Now, Jesus wasn't saying, don't care for your parents. He wasn't saying that. But what he was saying is this. He is the one and only Messiah. God himself come to earth to rescue us. How can we say, well, not yet. Well, just let me, just let me. He, when we know who God is, how can we not follow him with our whole heart? How can we not follow him when we understand who he is? So Jesus was saying, it's not that he was saying, don't care for your parents, but he's kind of saying, don't you know who I am? I carry life. If you want to do the practice of the dead and hang out with that, you go ahead, but I have the answers. I am life. I am God. Follow me and follow me now. And that's what he was saying. He was trying to take their thinking to a higher plane and away from earthly things. I think it's amazing. He's trying to elevate their sight to who he is and what their future could be. That he is the highest priority overall. I love that song we sang earlier when, we, when we're saying, we are here for you. It's like, count me in, Jesus. Count me all in. We are here for you. I am here for you. I don't just want you here for me. I am here for you. And this is what Jesus is challenging. And I like the way the message version puts it. When Jesus refused, first things first, your business is life, not death. And it says, follow me, pursue life. That's what we want. Follow Jesus, pursue life. And it's interesting how these would-be disciples contrast with the earlier stories of how Jesus' main disciples gave up everything to follow him. Do you remember Matthew taught on it last week? how they abandoned all and counted the cost. In Mark 1, it says they left their nets at once and followed him. That's the contrast. They left at once and followed him. The highest privilege to follow the master. So what is a disciple? Jesus talks to us about taking up our cross daily. This is our daily commitment, daily saying, I am here, use me, speaking to God. In Luke 9, Jesus says, it says, then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And this, so this is all about our lifestyle, a lifestyle of discipleship. Now, just recently we've had Wimbledon, haven't we? I don't know if there's any tennis fans here. I love the tennis if I can get to watch any. I definitely can watch the Wimbledon final because it's on a Sunday afternoon. I love this final. Wasn't it amazing? You got Djokovic, the number one in the world player with all his experience. I think he's 36 now. 
And then you've got this young guy, Carlos, who's 19, just turned 20, and he, like, makes it look like just running around the court. He's, you know, he has another few hours in him. And it was an amazing match. It was incredible. But what does it take to get there? What does it take? Now, it's interesting listening to the commentators and how they were talking about the number of young people who reached number one in their young people um, categories but never made it to professional tennis because of the discipline that's needed. And they were talking particularly about Djokovic. And they were talking about his health and fitness. Now he's like laser-focused on everything. His training, his diet, learning new tennis tactics. Apparently at one time his serve was weak, and now it's so powerful. And they were talking about all these different things. The amount of practice they have to do, and then the resting they have to do. There's like active resting. The devotion to their sport to develop and not stay still, but to grow and to be the best. They are totally focused on their sport. And anyone half-hearted about tennis, that's great. Go down you know, your local park and play. But if you want to be at Wimbledon, you've got to be devoted. No half measures. And I found this interesting quote that Djokovic said. And he says this, In order to stay where I am, uh, that's like world number one, in order to stay where I am, and I want to do that, I have to stay dedicated as well as I have been before I became number one. Can you see? Now, he's saying this. When I was a young tennis player, I was hungry. I was so hungry for it. I practiced, and I went for it, and I went for it. But what if he got to number one, and then he eased off? And he was like half-hearted. Oh, I won't go to practice today. I think I'll just eat that donut if I want to. He wouldn't stay number one, would he? And so it's the devotion. And it's the same in our Christian life, that we're not meant to be a half-hearted hobby Christian, but actually we give our whole life devotedly to Jesus and follow him. It's not meant to be a halfway house type of thing, but to be a disciple, heart and soul, abandoning all to Jesus. And this comes when we fully appreciate who he is. And also, we, it's like going on an adventure in him, with him. All our lives are different. None of us know uh, the future or the plan for us. Now, many of you here are coming to the end of your degree, your end of your PhD, you're in that stage of like, what will happen now? What job will I get? How can I stay in Swansea? Or how can I... So I wanted to share a little bit of my story of getting in a boat. I mean, not a real boat, right? So getting in a boat. So when I was 18, I was on a coach coming back from St. Martin's Art College in London. And all my young life, although I'd been good at my lessons, I just loved art from a very young age. I, I could draw, I could, I could draw anything. There weren't computers at that time, so if, you know, the local library or the theatre wanted something, I could draw it. I loved it. I wanted to go to this art college in London, St. Martin's. And I went to the interview. I loved everything about it, went on the tour, absolutely couldn't wait. I was age 18. And on the coach going home, I felt God speak to me. And I felt God say to me, I don't want you there. And it was just so clear. And I, 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 was, I, I didn't know how to place it because I felt my whole life had built to this moment. I'd collected a portfolio of stuff together for like four years. And it, it was so clear. And on that coach going home, I felt like God was saying to me at 18, I felt like God was saying, Sarah, you have always said, this is my life, bless it. You've never said, what do you want with my life? And I was like, whoa. And I've noticed that when God speaks to me, he's always a bit strict. 
maybe I need it. He's always a bit strict and firm. And I, I you know, was a few hours home on the coach, and I, and I was like, I, I'm, okay, Lord, I just, I'm going to give this up. I don't know what to do instead. I've missed all the deadlines. So the following day, I went into school and spoke to my English teacher, who was a Christian, and I spoke to her, Miss Seacombe. She's actually Harry Seacombe's niece, if anyone knows Harry Seacombe. And I went to have a chat with her, and I said, oh, Miss Seacombe, I don't know what to do. You know, I've missed all the deadlines. Um, there's nothing else I want to do. I, I, don't, I don't really know. And she said, well, why don't you do an English degree? And it's like, I was good at English, but I don't really like it. And I was like, well, I don't know. Are you just saying that because you're an English teacher? And she said, well, you're good at it. I think you'd enjoy a degree in English. And I was like, oh. So I went home and prayed. And I felt God say to go for an English degree. And I was like, really, Lord? This is, this is like the second obedience that cuts deep. You know, so I wrote off to a number of universities because I was too late to go through all the proper channels. Nobody wrote back except Cardiff. And Cardiff University just wrote back and said, yeah, we'll take you. Turn up on the 10th of October. That was it. That was just one little letter. Turn up. They don't even care what qualifications I got, anything. Just turn up. So I did. I turned up in um, Cardiff, 10th of October. The first thing I noticed was how wet it was. It rained every day. And the first thing I bought was an umbrella and a rain mac. So <coughs> I, I, did, I, did, I was doing my English degree. And by the second year, age 19, some people in my church that I'd met did evangelism, and they took me on board with them. And I was hungry for it. I wanted to witness to my friends. I wanted to learn how to explain the gospel. And this, yeah, this couple, Pete and Angie, two little kids, I would babysit. I would draw all these acetates for him. For Remember overhead projector acetates that you'd have to use? And, um, and in the summer, I went on this mission with them in Bath. Bath it's called Bath Teletourist. And I went on this mission. There's about 40 of us. We'd go on the street every day and share the gospel about Jesus. We'd have crowds of 400, 600 people. In fact, one time, Pete got taken to the police station for uh, causing a, a, an obstruction. And we'd be outside Bath Abbey. And we saw loads of people say, I was hungry for this. And then one evening, um, I did this two years running. One evening, we were down in the basement. It was all boys and girls and some older people. I say boys and girls. We were like all 18 to 20s. But there was a few people in their 30s, 40s who seemed really old at the time and uh, mature. And we were down in this basement. And there's this skinny preacher. And he opened his Bible to Psalm 16. And he started to read, Apart from you, O Lord, I have no good thing. And it was like the room disappeared. And that is, that is all I remember of his whole talk. And I felt God saying to me again, like, Apart from him, he is, he is the most important. Not that we don't have good things in our life. We are very blessed by God. But apart from you, oh Lord, I have no good thing. And I, I was just, Lord, it is all about you. It is, I had like this fresh revelation. When everyone went to bed, the boys would sleep in this like really like damp basement. And the girls would sleep in the Sunday school rooms. I crept into the church. And I sat up there in the balcony and I began to pray. And I said, Lord, I gave my heart to you as a young person. I've never strayed from that, but I see something different now. And I just give you everything. I abandon myself to you. I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. I meant it with all my heart. And as I did that, I felt the building was filled with his presence. Just the presence of God. And I remember as like a naive 19-year-old thinking how big God is, you know, because he filled the church. <laughs> of course, he's much bigger than that. But you know when you're 19, you're like, whoa. And I began to cry. I began to weep. And I gave everything to God. And I felt him like brand my heart, like in a cowboy film. And you'd see them put a branding fork in the fire and then brand the cattle tsh, like that with, you know, I know, W for Wall Egan or something like that. And it was like, tsh, it was like 
thing that branded on my heart that I would never be the same. And then on that mission, I met Julian. Now, in my heart, I was like, I am devoted to God, no boys. I'm, and Julian was like, I'm devoted to God, no girls. And God almost had to, like, drag us together, like, you know, come on, you two. And he teamed us up. And in a sense, like, the rest is history with that. But what happened then? I'm going to skip forward. We worked in many different areas. But eventually, when we pioneered Cornerstone, we started working in a very impoverished community. And we found that all our usual youth events and everything, nothing would work. Nothing would work at all. Oh, sorry, I just skipped a little bit that's quite important. After, my, after we met and all that type of thing, when I finished my English degree, I said to the Lord, great, I can go full-time with Julian now. And, and I felt the Lord say to me, go and do teacher training. And I was like, no, no, anything but no. And I was like, really? I, I can't think of anything worse I would want to do. And, I, and I, I felt God clearly tell me, and I went to Kincoid College in Cardiff, amazing teachers there. I loved the course with the thought that I wouldn't have to do teaching after. But then I got in the Cardiff pool. That's the way they worked at the time. But you know, when I arrived, I felt like such an imposter because there were people there. You had to go around saying why you wanted to be a teacher. And there were people like, you know, my father and my grandfather and my mother and my auntie and my whole family are teachers. And I feel it's a legacy. And other people going from the age of eight and knew you wanted to be a teacher. And I didn't really have anything to say because I just felt God has sent me there. So anyway, after I finished teacher training and we got married, God sent us to Hereford. We worked in Hereford. God sent us to Swansea. We worked in Swansea. Then we pioneered Cornerstone Church. So some years later, working in this impoverished community, a lot of violence, truancy, teenage pregnancy, the house that we were living in, we were burgled 16 times in seven years on our house, our car, our garden. It's really difficult. And during this time of um, pioneering, um, I remember a, a, a friend of mine who lived in Southampton saying to me, once your kids are all in school, once Chloe's like five and in school full time, take a year out. It's taken its toll on you, pioneering the burglaries. Take a year out to just recover. Just love your kids, hang out. And I said, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I can. And I was, as it's cl clocking up to September, Julian thinks of this amazing project to reach the young people called Learning Through Leisure. Although I was like, I think God will give me a different title to that, which was The Gap. Um, but originally it had a different title. And, and, it, and we set it up, but it just didn't have the infrastructure. And Julian one day was praying. He goes, Who, who's got like a teacher training qualification? Knows how to help people. Like sort of almost like the teenagers, but they're like primary and they're in the way we need to reach them. Who has got that? Who isn't already a teacher in a teaching job? Who could do that for me? And of course, that was me. And I was planning this year off. And I remember us walking up and down some streets. And I was like, tell me again why I have to do this. <laughs> and he was like, just for one year, sir. Just for one year, I promise. Just for one year. Just for, if you could just shape it up for one year. So I said yes. And I was there 13 years, pioneering church and working full time with disaffected young people. Young people who are dropping out of school, disaffected. And I realized why God sent me to do an English degree and teacher training, because now I could use it in the community. And for 13 years, we helped over 2,000 young people. We helped them get into jobs and training. It brought the crime rate down by 25%. It brought the teenage pregnancy crime rate down. It changed the locality. It helped forge a way for other churches to do projects, because at the time, the council wouldn't fund church projects. And this all happened many years with a great team, a fantastic team. And I want to say this started with saying yes on a coach at 18. It started by saying, 
Yes, okay, Lord, I won't go to St. Martin's. I would do what you want me to do. And this is what Jesus does with our lives. When we say yes, when we say I'm all in, he has an adventure. It'd be a different adventure for you, a different adventure for me, a different adventure wherever we are, with the children that we are raising who will have their adventures, that you know you are training them in your home, that they are going to have adventures in healing and reaching the lost. And every day that we give ourselves to Jesus and we put ourselves in that boat, that God will do something with an abandoned life. He will give us purpose and meaning to every day of our life. And when Jesus says, if we try to hold on to our life, we will lose it. But if we give it to him, we will find it. That's so true. The more things we try to hold on to, we are restricted. But when we abandon our life, God can work through us and he can do something amazing with your life. And I'm just going to close with this last boat story. So for many summers, we've hired this little flat in Spain. And we don't bother getting a car. We get a transfer there. And it's just near a little down little lane to a beach. There's a bus stop. You can get into town. So we don't hire a car. But I'd always wanted, I'd seen in the paper, that the next village round had this amazing festival every summer. And every summer I wanted to go to this festival, but there was no public transport there. There was no way of getting there. It was very awkward hiring a car. And, you know, we didn't do it. And then one year when we were there, I said to Julian, let's go by boat. Because there's a little local boat, and this boat would take you round the headlands to the next village. And so we went down, and we bought our tickets for this boat, and we got on the local boat. And this is quite an experience with the locals on their boat. And we go round the headland to the next village. And we arrive at the next village, and there is no boat back till the next day. So that's okay. We find a little bed and breakfast. Okay. So... Because we took the adventure and bought those tickets, now we had access to all the things I could hear at a distance but never see. And there was like this festival and parades and special food and children performing and the sea and all Spanishy things and tapas. And then when we were a bit tired, we went back up into our little B&B and found that what we thought was a cupboard was doors opened onto a little balcony. And we sat on the balcony with a drink, and suddenly the sky filled with fireworks. That's my favorite thing. And the sky was full of fireworks. It was amazing. And there we were with the sea, with the moon glistening on the sea and the fireworks. And the next morning, we got on the boat and went back. And if I'd never got in that boat, I'd never experienced those brand new things. Those brand new things because we bought the ticket to get in a boat. So as we do this series together... Let us decide we're getting in Jesus' boat. I'm all in. I'm going to count the cost. I want this, Lord. I am in your boat. And let's all be in the boat together of going on this adventure of what God can do in our lives with an abandoned heart as a true disciple who takes moments of quiet to be in his presence but then goes on the journey with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all those who have recorded their life with you and what happened and your encounters with other people, that we can see these things in the Bible of how you walked and talked with people and what challenge you brought. We thank you, Lord, that we can learn from it too. We thank you, Lord, that you're going to come and meet us even this week 
when we take little pockets of time to be quiet. I ask that you'll bring a sense of your presence to bring us peace. Like Christy was saying in the kids' spot there, those moments of peace in our hearts. And Lord, we come to you and we say, we don't want to just have the words of the disciple, but we want the heart of a disciple. Help us, Lord, as we say, I am going to get in that boat. I want it. I want to follow you with all my heart. Help me, Lord. Help me. And if you feel you want to do that and you say, do you know, I want this for myself. Let's stand together. If you say, Jesus, I want to follow you with all my heart. Let's stand and we pray a prayer of dedication together. So just pray your own prayer. You are a disciple coming to Jesus. Or maybe you're coming for the first time. But come to him and pray your own prayer of devotion, giving your life to him afresh. If you've never given your life to Jesus before and you'd like to, here's a moment that you can do it. And I'm going to pray a prayer and you can pray along with me and give your life to Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me and that you died on the cross for me, that you sacrificed for me. I give my life to you today. I ask, Lord, that you will come into my heart, you will come into my life, that I may do this walk with you. I turn from all the things I've done wrong and my old way of living, and instead I turn to you, Jesus. I ask that you'll forgive me for all the things I've done wrong and wipe the slate clean that I can walk with you. Come to me now by the power of your Holy Spirit and help me to walk with you. And if you pray that prayer for the first time, come and speak to one of the leaders, one of us at the end over on the side. And then for the rest of us together, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you once again. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for showing that you are the highest priority. And then you come into our life with your power to help us live out the day-to-day -day with all the busyness and all the things going on. We need your strength. We need you with us by the power of your spirit. So once again, Lord, we say, here we are. Here we are for you. And we ask that you will take our lives and do an amazing thing with it. Thank you, Lord, that you will bring meaning and purpose into our lives as we give ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone. Take your seats.